Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and you can consider me a co-conspirator and a collaborator and co-creator on this journey of digging into the interconnected themes of mind, body, and soil. Each week, I feel so incredibly grateful and lucky to dive deep into such fascinating worlds with my guests. And this podcast has been a very long time in the making. It has been in my heart for over five years, and it took me a long time to finally listen to what my body had been telling me and say yes. When I talk about mind, body, and soil, it is looking at different components of a whole. I want to explore how our mental processes within ourselves and as we look out towards our society and communities interact with the processes of our body and within that the health and the microbiome that is contained within it. But it is not lost on me that connected to all of this is soil. And while that tagline is this cute musing on mind, body, and soul. I think that connection to soil is actually a big part of soul and a big part of our health and wellness. And something that is critical to begin to explore and look at with our curiosity. We have been delighted and fascinated by the cosmos and the deep sea for a very long time and we look through our telescopes and the images that we receive back are ones that fill us with deep awe and wonder. And when we muse about what might be in the Marianas Trench or in the depths of the ocean, we are sent on this delight of mystery. And what I want to cultivate within this context is that same sense of curiosity, wonder, awe, and wanting to uncover mystery that lies in the universe beneath our feet. And like the billions of stars that we receive through light in our eyes as we gaze at the night sky, so are there these billions of organisms within the soil that are connecting us through mycelial networks and through the nutrient cycling of our food and through our microbiome each and every day. And in many ways, there are cosmos beneath our feet Our guest today is a very important one to me. 
She was one of the first guests I reached out to to be on the podcast. And it was actually her work almost a decade ago that really began to connect me to the soil part of this conversation. And the speech and the the workshop I saw her give that those 10 years ago changed the trajectory of my life. And I know that that might sound outsized, but it's not. When I saw Molly Haviland, our guest today, speak on soil, I knew that I had found a missing piece in what I wanted to better understand about my life and what I wanted to move towards holding. And we talk a lot about holding physically soil and this manifestation of Mother Earth in this podcast. And oh, everyone, Molly's oration and her beauty as an educator and her ability to connect soil and spirit is unparalleled. And the information that you are about to embark on on this podcast I think is information that will change the way you view the myriad of relationships you have with both self and other and will begin to blur the boundary of what separates those two things, self and other. And so what I ask of you before we embark on this journey is that you take a breath wherever you are and you connect to the idea that the air that you are breathing and the microbes that are present there that have been in interaction with plants above ground and the soil below ground are entering through your respiratory tract into your digestive tract and becoming a part of your being. And with every breath, there is this chance for a deeper connection. If it's available to you, you might want to go and hold some soil as we discuss at the beginning of this podcast or hold it afterwards in reverence and in seeking of the relationship that Molly will really elucidate that is possible and to tell us what the soil says is possible and it is infinite. Before we dive into our journey, I just want to invite those of you that are listening and that are receiving information and education from this podcast to share it with a friend, leave a review if it calls to you, a written review on Apple Podcasts or a starred review on something like Spotify. And if you so want, subscribe to this podcast as we embark on more and more journeys that will begin to peel back these veils of mystery and layers of connection between mind, body, and soil. In the spirit of reciprocity, I offer if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts and shoot me a snapshot of it on Instagram at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, or you can find it in the show notes. I will send you a little piece of snail mail if you would so like so that we can connect in the tangible realm. And in that spirit, each week I read a review. And so this week's is from Anne Farah, and it is titled very appropriately, Going Deep. 
I love how different this podcast is compared to other health and wellness podcasts. Kate doesn't just allow guests to teach us about certain topics. She goes deep with them and pulls out so much juicy information. It's everything I want to learn and more. Oh, and thank you for seeing me in that review. This is my greatest joy is to dive deep and to find all of that juiciness. And I selected your review because it so fits the depth and juiciness that we are going to hear from Molly Haviland in the, in the context of this podcast. I am so excited to learn with you each week. Thank you for coming back. And I hope that this podcast inspires you to seek out Molly's work. I feel sure that she will also be back on for another go around on this podcast and helping us to connect back to our intuition, back to the soil, back to our feminine and so much more. So thank you. And without further ado, the beautiful Molly Haviland. I texted you this this morning and we were just talking about how soil inspires awe. And I wanted to tell you sort of at the, at the front of this that I had watched your workshop, uh, your soil workshop that you had sent to me in preparation for your collaboration with Duke University. And I brought my husband in on this watching and watching his face as he peeked inside of your microscope through these videos was like watching a child seeing a fire truck for the first time or watching a rocket go into space. He was smiling and giggling and there was a sense of boyish wonder just all, all throughout his being. And I was struck at your ability to cultivate that because I think it was almost 10 years ago that I saw you speak at Brad Buchanan's ranch and was struck with such deep awe and wonder for the universe beneath our feet that it it has rippled throughout my career for the last decade. I mean, your work has made such a big impact on me. And so this couldn't be a more important podcast for me to record. Oh my goodness. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Really is such a gift to be able to watch people get excited about something that contains so much potential and so much life despite what we've done with it. And it's so responsive. Hmm. Responsive. I love that. Yes. We are in partnership and community with this. And I wondered as I prepared this podcast, how you came to be in a relationship with soil, because this is, this is such a hidden world. And I think about this a lot that we look to the cosmos and we look to space and we look through our telescopes with this wonder and awe. And yet we don't know anything about the universe beneath our feet that we can find little small hints of through our microscopes. Well, 
as time marches on, <laughs> I have, I can see a series of events that have like stacked up throughout my life that continue to confirm that I'm on a, a path that is fulfilling to be on and is constantly unfolding with new information. But I would say my fervor for building soil occurred because of my undergraduate schooling living in Southeast Iowa. I went to a university in Fairfield, Iowa, and I studied sustainable living. And very being very much a girl of the Mountain West, it was a trip to be in, you know, what had been grassland prairie. Having moved to the breadbasket of America and really just you know, having such a hard time finding places to go outside and cast, you know, gaze across landscapes that hadn't been manipulated by humans. I have definitely taken that for granted about the grandeur of the West. There's so much space that is not as manipulated as our prairie landscapes in the Midwest have been. So realizing that in the breadbasket of America, I was actually very much in a food desert, right? There was not those cornfields and soybean fields. That food wasn't meant to go to me directly. It was meant to go through the body of an animal that actually just should have been on that landscape. Right. And so yes. I'm like taking permaculture classes and visiting the, the Des Moines river quite a bit, the Missouri river. And there was one day on a riverbank where I was really just like digging myself a deep, dark hole about humanity and being very sad about the degradation that I was witnessing this chocolatey brown river that was flowing in front of me from, you know, that chocolate brown color, milky color really was from erosion. And I'm thinking about all of this and the riverbank across from me falls away from itself. Like a huge chunk of the earth falls into the river. And I'm yeah, like, calves almost, I picture it calving. Yeah, it must. Yes. Yes. The splash like a glacier. Um, totally. Yes. And my heart was broken. My heart was so broken. And I really just in that moment felt like what I needed to do as a contribution to my community was to learn about how I could build soil, how we could stop the practices that are making these kind of atrocities happen. And the next couple days when classes started again uh, was my first class with Dr. Elaine Ingham, a soil microbiologist who really did a has done an exquisite job of taking something that could be, that had been considered boring or far too complex, the world of the soil microbes. And she put a very good story to it. And I dedicated myself to learning from her for many years and eventually taught that course that I took at that university. And so really it was kind of this confluence of witnessing soil degradation, but then also meeting this person that was just like so stoked on soil, so stoked on composting and really just gave me vocabulary 
on how to describe it. So very much of what I teach, um, I learned from her and the excitement that she created in her classrooms. Did you have, before we hit record, you were talking about watching people and their sort of first experience holding soil. And I was really struck by holding of the earth. And I think that there's this space where the earth is constantly holding and supporting us. And it's such a different relationship to put your hands in the soil and to suddenly find yourself holding this little piece of earth and finding your connection to it. And I wonder, as you watched that sort of calving of the riverbed, if you had a first moment where you picked up a handful of soil and had a relationship with it, had some sort of moment of holding of reciprocity. For sure. That's a really great insight. And, you know, I didn't, at that time in my life, I didn't really know how, like, I didn't think of that process of like getting in there, you know, it like, it took some culturing within myself and really going up, particularly the grabbing of soil samples and creating a structure around that, which at that time, I think it was very extractive. Like it took a while before I learned how to look at soil. Having been invited to travel along with some soil consultants and learn how they do field walks and learn about how they look at the soil and what mysteries are unfolding through them witnessing aggregation or biopores or root nodules, um, that cultivated in me over time. And I think more recently that appreciation for being in that space and the taking from that space, like asking permission is something that I'm practicing more because it's not mine, (laughs) you know? So it feels good to like actually just sort of ask for permission and take pause into the moment in order to really be able to witness what it means to be holding a handful of soil. I was struck. I was very sore to miss your spirit series in New Mexico. And I was really struck by something that was in the literature in that invitation. And I'd love to dive into just a little peek of what's happening in this universe beneath our feet. But first, I want to come back to this space that you had held within your spirit series where you asked, how can we prepare our minds and bodies to have a dialogue with the plant realm. And I wondered if you might, and I I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you might prepare us here as listeners to begin a dialogue with the plant realm in this podcast form that maybe people can take with them outdoors if they're listening or after they listen and want to start that conversation. That's awesome. Thank you for diving into the part that I have been very reluctant to share, but I generally go where I'm invited and, you know, kind of consider like the invitation as like a call to come out of my like hiding spot. Yeah. I would be so happy to share my perspective. Of course, there's many, many ways in which people engage that realm, right? Like preparing their bodies for many days in ceremony, 
And that is incredibly valuable and wildly profound work. I tend to take an approach of doing something that helps to create some embodiment. So maybe it's breath work, maybe it's a few yoga asanas, maybe maybe it's a, a quick walk. There's some Qigong movements that I find really helpful that primarily just release a lot of like tension, which I hold here. Not everybody does. I hold, I hold it in my neck and upper shoulders as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So opening that up, right. It's a, it's a, like for the way I imagine it is there's this sort of like separation that is at that tension mark. And so if we can kind of like create some little openings within that, that boundary of tension, then we can actually have a connection to the heart. And so I think the awareness of the body includes heart forward awareness while understanding the connection that our gut and our brain have to the heart. But that heart is the interface of the world. It receives information before our brain does. It actually like receives it, feels it, sends messages to our brain. Our brain makes choices. And then actually it's like back and forth conversation, whether or not we're aware of it. So ultimately it's kind of like working towards opening up that space. And then I take a walk and I open up my huntress eyes like peripheral vision. And I feel the space that I'm walking through. And sometimes it literally looks like a plant is like, yoo-hoo, over here, like waving at me. <laughs> um, or a bird lands in a tree or, you know, I just... I go where I'm invited and I make myself available to that invitation or I see something I've never seen before. And so I'd like to make an inquiry, but engaging with nature, I think so often, especially from the sciences, right? Like we go out and we get, and we clip and we bring it back and we chop it up into all these bits. And then we look at the molecules We're talking about establishing a relationship here. So when you meet somebody that you've never met before, do you just start like taking off their jewelry and, you know, no, you're like, hi, my name's Kate. Aren't you just so beautiful in the sunny glory today? You know, you admire, can I offer you anything? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? I brought my pouch of tobacco or grains as an offering for you? Would you like a bit of water? Really? It's like that. And then I think it can go into so many different directions, just like a sit and an awareness of the structure of the plant and the communities that surround it, asking questions, inviting that being to come into spaces that are quiet, like maybe our dreams or maybe our meditation, or actually just maybe in that moment. And I think responses can come back in so many different ways for so many people. It can be a feeling, right? So that's like that heart element aspect. It can be vision. It can be sound. It really depends. And I think for some people, I think that they get frustrated because they're like trying to listen and you know, like, how do I listen? How do I listen? And it's like, well, just 
maybe just lay down <laughs> on the ground and just be there, right? Like there's this story that Elliot Cohen in Plant Spirit Medicine describes a woman went out to have a conversation with some plants and she engaged in a conversation with Mullen and she came back to Elliot and she was like, I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't think that I had a connection. Like I must be doing something wrong. And she's like taking these big breaths, like the whole time she's talking oh. to him, like pointing to her chest. And he's like, really, you really don't think you had an experience because I can see that you're pointing to your chest and like Mullen is all about breath and lung expansion. And I mean, what hilarity, right? So like we can have the experience, but if we're really narrow about how we're going to receive something, it, it might take a little while to settle in. But ultimately in that time that we share with nature, the closing of that time is equally as important, right? If I just met you and we've shared tea and snacks and heartfelt discussions, I'm not just going to get up and walk away. Thank you so much for your time. This has been incredibly meaningful to me. By the way, your leaves smell amazing. May I please take one so that I can remember this time together, right? It's not like a farewell. And yeah, it's relationship so that as we continue to move outside in nature, there is a, a nod, right? As we walk by these plants, we've had an experience with them. You know, if you go walking and you're not giving acknowledgement, it's sort of similar to seeing a friend at the grocery store, but like turning the other way, it's hurtful. I think that the, yeah, it really, it's rooted in relationship and reverence, for me at this time, that's where my awareness kind of swirls around that. That word reverence has come to me quite a bit in this time. And I really like that way of approaching relationship. And I heard so many beautiful relationship words in what you just said about opening and softening that boundary and letting go of control in a lot of ways, letting go of our expectations and allowing beingness to happen, letting go of doingness and extracting and just, just entering a state of being. And I think that really dovetails so beautifully into talked so much about on this podcast, this separation that we have with nature. And I hadn't considered it until the words that you were saying, but part of that separation is not viewing it as a relationship and as this space of reverence and reciprocity of having a hello and a farewell. And I was just really struck that in order to begin to break down that myth of separation, we have to go into relation. That's a really beautiful observation. I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you for guiding us and giving us a space of how we can maybe begin to shift our mindsets in how we interact with the plant realm. And with that, I wonder if we might just 
And I know that I know that we could never do it justice and that we can only scratch the surface, but I just want to peek inside of the soil from your perspective and get a little picture of a neighborhood within that universe and who might be there and what might be happening amongst all these, all these players in the soil food web. Oh, I love Love this question. (laughs) Well, it's a very dynamic space. There's a lot that is happening as a result of temperature fluctuations, time of day, season, moisture. And ultimately, the story has to begin somewhere. And it seems like the most fitting place to start is the roots of plants. So plants being our primary producers, they are gathering, harnessing energy from the sun and CO2 and using water, and they are building their plant bodies. And as they are growing and they're extending their roots into the soil, out of their roots come exudates. Exudates are sugars. Dr. Ingham calls them the cakes and the cookies of the soil. They're like a dinner bell for microbial communities to come and dine and feast and exchange enzymes and hormones and their sticky, slimy substances and their waste products, if you will. And so the plant We say ultimately it drives the show, but there's no way a plant is going to access nutrients without microbes as the interface. Even in solution, it still requires microbes to transfer nutrients into the plant cell wall barriers. And so ultimately from that plant root interface, which by the way, microbes are going to be covering the the rhizosphere, so the root area of the soil, but, uh, the philosphere, the above ground parts of the plant inside of the flowers, coating the seed within the seed, right? So there's that kind of zoom out for a moment, but kind of like humans and our microbiome it's everywhere. Oh, it's so exquisite. It's so exquisite. It really is like a profound realization. It was a profound realization for me to learn about the importance of the microbiome within the birthing canal and that it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe, maybe we were, I don't know, maybe it was the nineties where doctors were starting to learn after giving cesarean section that they actually needed to swab the infant, the baby with the microbial community that's within the birthing canal in order for that child to be healthy. And it it is the same. It is the same with our seeds. They contain a microbiome from their mother plant and it's in them. And so when that seed germinates, it does have its microbiome with it as like a initial kind of castle wall of protection. Also, to assure that microbes will be there so that when the seed germinates, that there will be microbes to respond to those exudates to begin the feeding process. And something that I think is so cool about the soil microbial community is that there's two 
organisms that we are aware of on this planet that have the ability to completely decompose something. And these organisms are key players in ecosystem functioning, which means the totality of all the things. And that's bacteria and fungi. And bacteria and fungi are going to make a relationship with plant parts. Some of them are symbiotic, so they actually climb into the plant and they become participatory in the plant life cycle processes and nutrient acquisition and nutrient transformation. And then our decomposing organisms actually have the ability to break apart all the carbon compounds so that it can be reassimilated by the rest of the soil food web community. And bacteria are very resilient. One can become two like every 10 minutes or so. They can be hanging out within the same area, not touching and relate information, experience, right? Like oh, DNA information. And so they have a way of engaging with plants and other microbial communities that is incredibly profound. Of course, as I mentioned before, we have hormones and enzymes that are being excreted into this environment. Yeah. So bacteria can reproduce very quickly. They are predominant in early succession environments. They do quite well, like in our standard agricultural settings, although their diversity can be quite reduced. When we have bacterial diversity, it's like you've got energy for all kinds of other things to happen because they're also a significant food source for the rest of the members of the soil food web. So bacteria, one of the only decomposers on the planet. The other one is fungi, incredibly intelligent beings, constantly being able to restructure digestive juices in order to break down complex carbon structures, right? Like in the last 10 years, a uh, fungus that can break down plastics has been found. Unbelievable. So yeah, it's really amazing. So they, I, I think of them as enjoying a very complex puzzle, which to break apart. Most of our agricultural systems are lacking in a fungal presence, a beneficial fungal presence, primarily because of disturbance also because of chemicals, but the fungi are, they can be likened to the internet of the soil. And so we can think of them as these two, they are tubes webbing hyphae that extend throughout the soil. Some make relationships with plants and they can transfer nutrients in multiple directions through their cytoplasm and they exchange it between plants and they also exchange it along their, their bodies, like for the decomposer fungi, if you will. And so ultimately I call, and Dr. Ingham calls these organisms fertilizer bags because they're breaking stuff down and they're holding it in their body. And it isn't until their bodies get opened that those nutrients can really be received within the rest of the soil food web community. But again, they're what those organisms are exuding is beneficial to the plant in numerous ways. And like, if we think about the plant changing its exudates complexity over a growing season, because, you know, as, as a female being pregnant, one requires maybe different nutrients yes. 
at different stages during that spectrum of time. And so plants have that as well. And so they change their exudates and the community, the microbial community responds. Oh, you need more iron right now? Got you. It literally is being found like this is the conversation through what we call chemistry. So as we move into still microscopic, but larger organisms, nematodes, microarthropods, these organisms, the beneficials don't fit in soils that are compacted. And most of our managed soils are compacted. So I liken bacteria and fungi as the brick builders in the soil. So bacteria are sticky and slimy and whatever they're touching, whatever they come in contact with, they coat it with a sticky, slimy glue. And that glue material, along with like glomulin material from fungi, assist in pulling together sand, silt, and clay and organic matter bits within the soil. And so we're starting to build micro aggregates. And this is the foundation of soil so that when the rain falls and the wind blows, soil can stay in the same place. And so these organisms help to build soil structure and soil porosity, which allows for airflow. And so then we can have space for larger organisms that really we can think of as a grazing community or um, shredders, like from, I don't know, I think of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, (laughs) but like the rest of the organisms are like basically like breaking apart surface area on stuff in order for bacteria and fungi to actually do the decomposing. And so the bacteria and fungi create a, a home in which these larger organisms can exist within. And So we're still moving up with like all of these fertilizer bags, right? Whatever we ate is in our body until it's not anymore. And so we're holding those nutrients and we're transforming them into something else. So we have larger organisms like protozoa, which consume all kinds of things, primarily bacteria, but also soluble organic matter. And they release different forms of nitrogen within the soil. So They can upcycle nitrogen so that ammonium is being released into the soil, which reduces weed seed germination. It increases fruit set and seed set within plants. And then we also have nematodes, primarily the bad ones get the wrap, but ultimately even the bad ones, they have a role And it's a very poignant role because root-feeding nematodes, if if they can get into a plant root, an unprotected plant root, they can kill that plant in a matter of days, thereby increasing soil organic matter within a field. Like, yes, I'm sorry that you lost your crop. And also, I also see that you have lost 50 to 70% of your soil organic matter. So Mm. your root feeding nematodes just helped you on the path to increasing your soil organic matter. So we have those nematodes, which are usually in compacted soils. This is, this Um, is beautiful. But there's also, I just want to pause here and I want to make a note of, we are so quick to judge things in our human vision of good and bad. And 
underneath the soil, I think there is an invitation for me at least to drop our judgments and to look at this world of collaboration, yes, but also transformation and that there aren't these sort of designating labels of good and bad, but you can begin to see purpose unfold in every community member of this diverse web. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, early succession species, species that reproduce lots of offspring very quickly, tend to be our disease-causing organisms. So like in the case of root-feeding nematodes and the science of creating nematicide, in a way, it's a little bit like having a job as a, as a barber or a hairdresser. Like the hair is just going to keep growing. The ne- root-feeding nematodes are just going to keep... Like if you keep compacting your soil and you keep disturbing it and you keep burning out the organic matter, those root-feeding nematodes reproduce so fast and they're going to outwit whatever toxins you're putting on them. So what sort of stage can we set to move succession into a higher level, let's say? And that is the the beauty of the, the soil food web, this micro and macroscopic organisms that through their predator-prey relationships, hold nutrients and cycle nutrients. And the structure gets built and they continue to build it. And it's so amazing. We can see them within the soil. We can look through the microscope and we can see these organisms and we can see aggregation forming, micro-aggregation forming as a result of management shifts and changes. So the soil food web isn't an organized, like linear web. It's all very interconnected. So as I mentioned, the protozoa can consume bacteria, but also things like soluble organic matter, which is really like waste products from other organisms. They also consume fungi. But as we move into our larger beneficial nematodes and microarthropods, now we're really starting to get a lot of different kinds of organic matter within our soil because these organisms are also living and dying. They're molting. They're leaving their chitin body parts, which is a a material that insects use to to build their, their exoskeletons. Fungi also use chitin. So all of this is being added into the soil and really complexing it with all kinds of different levels of carbon density. So we have some that can be consumed really quickly and some that actually just becomes more and more and more complex over time as a result of these organisms eating and digesting and pooping and reproducing. As we move into bigger soil creatures like beetles or mites, arthropods, I think it's really important to consider the work that Jonathan Lundgren from Blue Dasher Farms has been doing. He started looking into the bellies of insects to see what they were eating. And for our insects that are beneficial and primarily he was finding them on like regenerative farms that weren't tilling, that weren't applying lots of chemical. He found that these insects were eating weed seeds. So they would like take the seeds out of the gut of the insect and they would germinate it and it would be a weed. And so like, yeah, wow. a beautiful, uh, a beautiful friend in a field, right? And and so 
only he he says only one percent, maybe less than one percent of insects are disease causing or pest varieties. And yet we just go to town on them in our agricultural fields and we need them. So I think that in this world of the the soil food web and the soil microbiome, it's called the black box for a reason. It's incredibly mysterious. There are microscopes that have not yet been invented. There are PCR tests that have yet to be refined, metagenomic tests that have yet to be designed for us to see and understand the intricacy of what's going on there. But ultimately when it's there, it's working. It's working. And we start to take away some of those members and then we start to have greater challenges. We have less resiliency. These organisms aren't all alive at the same time. They're in different stages of activity. Some will be active. Some will be going into dormancy. Some will have been in their cysts or spores for maybe hundreds of years. What? Depending on, yeah, they can remain viable for a very long time. So there's a lot of potential that is within soil. And there's a lot that can occur, right? As I mentioned, with the change of temperature and moisture. So if you have that diversity, you can have resiliency through what we're experiencing as what we might call climate change. But there's an aspect at which this kind of goes away from our like soil food web community neighborhood nugget. That's all right. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. (laughs) Go wherever you're being invited Um, to go. I think that there's, um, humans aren't that good at engaging with diversity. It's hard for us. It's incredibly beneficial for us to engage in diversity. In fact, I think some of the most exciting and excited producers I've ever met are those that are in the regenerative agriculture movement because they get to see what Josh saw this morning, which is life occurring and emerging and happening on their farms where it was maybe not that exciting before. We don't get to have that diversity by continuing to go back to the soil and taking. We have to give back into the system. And so since we started bringing in plows and expanding farm fields and taking out hedgerows and tree rows and windrows. We've started reducing the diversity, but we keep coming back to these fields, keep asking for more. And I have seen many landscapes where we have gone back to mother nature so many times and we've continued to take, and it's basically down to the scaffolding, right? Like Maybe there are some cupboards left, but the hinges for the cupboard doors are gone. Like we have that level of work to engage in with many of our soils around the globe for giving back. There is no mother on this planet that can give unendingly without appreciation, without being nourished. Like, and we can do it. We can do it. And it is very responsive and it is possible. And yes, it takes time depending on where you are. It's certainly not a silver bullet, but it stands to show that the soil food web is needed within productive systems and we can foster that. 
I think that's so beautiful. And I loved your analogy of a mother can't give and give and give without being nourished and also held by her community that we have lost the sense of community. And as we look at these beautiful communities below ground, it always brings to mind for me this question of how we nourish them with the communities above ground and how we create once more our communities because we have become so individualistic. And I think that that is a symptom of this reductionism that we have embarked on where we want to look at the parts instead of looking at the concert of the whole. And I think that one of the lessons that I have begun to glimpse inside the soil is what can happen when we look at that concert of the whole that could never be understood in how intricate and beautiful all of these players are interacting. Yeah, I think too, I want to, there was something that you said in your soil series that really struck me that I think you're, you're speaking to in a way, which is that within the soil, one plus one does not equal two, but it equals infinite possibilities. And as you speak about this, you know, I had Anne Bickley and David Montgomery on, and she talked about soil being a lot of collaboration, but I think that there's also a lot of transformation and a lot of cycling, this nutrient cycling, that it's not just collaboration, but there's some dog eat dog, eat dog things where organisms are becoming one another and sort of flowing in and out of one another. And so within that, I want to ask you this question that you and I have kind of been exploring, which is what does the soil say about what is possible? Such a good question. (laughs) It's so good. I think that on one hand, with a standard ecological answer of it depends, but the possibilities within it are infinite. I mean, the soil cleans our water. It cleans our air. It degrades our toxins. It does decay work while simultaneously building. It's such a metaphor for <laughs> for our life processes. But within all of that, which it is doing for us, were we to tend to it and actually like take pause and notice of, is there something that you need soil? And what might that be? The response can be, it can come in so many ways. And ultimately, I think what it lands to is relationships, just as you said, like the above ground community that is making additions into the soil. It is an interdependent process that, you know, some people say that actually I was, I was out to dinner with a farmer friend the other day and he said something to the effect of like the planet doesn't give a shit if we're not here anymore. It can be fine without us but we need it. And I get it. And also I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure about that? There's a relationship, this like connection and collaboration that's happening. That is just fun. It's just fun. And why wouldn't yes. Okay. So maybe nature will be fine without us here, 
Okay. But is it better for that? Does it want us here? I don't really know how to give an answer to that kind of question per se, but I do think that like, it's similar to watching, you know, cows be let out onto fresh pasture in, in the way that they skip about, right? Like they're just so stoked to have this new engagement with food, but also like the bacteria and fungi and protozoa and plants are also stoked for this interaction that's about to, you know, occur. And, and the reason why I use the word stoked is because ultimately what happens with that interaction is they both grow from it. So the, the possibility I think is that growth. I think the possibility is actually release of fear and anxiety. There's a, a mycobacterium. I think it's pronounced vacay, V-A-C-C-A-E. And there's all kinds of mycobacterium and they live in the soil. And the only difference between a mycobacterium and a bacterium in short is basically an extra like outer membrane on the mycobacterium. So it can actually move through fatty layers and membranes pretty easily because it can't be broken down as easily as a bacteria could. But this one, the vacay, lives within soil. And when humans come in contact with this mycobacterium, serotonin is produced. It creates an anti-inflammatory response. So that means anxiety is reduced inflammation reduced. I mean, this is like a calming effect that like we developed over time in relationship with this one particular type of bacterium, but there's so many kinds, but like, that's what's possible. (laughs) Engaging with nature actually is soothing and calming and can create increase in serotonin production. Like the possibilities are endless. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin to tease apart what you just said, because it was so beautiful. And you touched on something that I think for lack of a better word has been haunting me as of late, which is this idea that, that we as humans are just this, this scourge on the earth and that we don't have a relationship with nature and that perhaps even that we shouldn't, that nature, you know, what you said there, that nature might be that your farmer friend mentioned that nature might be, it would just continue on without us. But when you explained that when you let cows out onto a pasture and you can feel how stoked they are, but underneath the ground is a whole community of members of the soil food web that are also stoked. And that is something that I had never considered when you walk out into that field and you can feel the joy that's emanating, that it's not just from this one being, but it's from all of these beings that have been brought into community and reciprocity and givingness together. And that it, there is potential and perhaps it has happened in the past and that it is happening in pockets right now as we speak and throughout time for humans to exist in this mutually stoked relationship with nature. Yeah. Yeah. The first part of what you had mentioned or what you were talking about got cut off. So I came in at the dinner conversation. I just had expressed in that first bit that 
I hear so much about what a scourge on the earth we as people are. And I think that I think that a lot of us carry that view within us. And I think that there's a space here where we could begin to shift as we come more into relationship that I think that was the, the gist of it. I think that's a really, really well put Kate, like the colonizer mentality just kind of has to go right. Like it's not mine. It's ours. Um, even thinking about like, yeah, just, yeah, I'll leave that there. But I think there's a transformation that needs to occur within humans regarding respect for that, which comes from nature. Like the commodification of all of that is just, it's, it's gross and it needs to be honored. And we can come back into this space. I don't know. I heard, I heard once, and I thought this was fascinating and I, I hadn't planned to bring this in, but I'm curious what you think about it just as a, an example of humans and their place within nature. And I've witnessed this as we have gotten to be in relationship with our own little hardwood forest here that the main driver of humans during nomadic times was not running out of food within a space, but running out of timber, that the dry timber on the ground had all been collected and used and built as fires, and that there was a lot of reciprocity in this relationship of taking some dry timber from the land. And that just kind of moved us along in our in our little family groups. And I think that we are carriers of seeds too, not unlike those beetles, right? We carry the seeds of fruits and plants in our waste and on our hands and maybe on our clothes. And we carry pollen and we carry this vast microbiome, the members of which outnumber our own human cells. And so I hope that within that is this idea that humans can be a vehicle for transformation and us ourselves can transform in our ideas and our relationship too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that mention of the human microbiome and ability to transform, I think is a really interesting aspect that, oh my gosh, I'm just so excited for your upcoming podcast with Zach Bush. But that community of microbes that's in our bodies actually is part of that heart level interface of processing information. So while on a linear plane, these microbes decompose because they're the only ones that can do that, they assist in decomposition, build up assimilation of of, of nutrients, but then also they're that interface for assimilation of our environment and what we take through our eyes and our ears and our skin. And we can't, we just, we can't pull it apart when we do. It's not behaving in the same way as it would when it was connected with the whole. This is just part of having, um, you know, more rural and uh, less whatever it is, internet. It's totally okay. I might have to put you through a couple of paces to download your side of things after our conversation, but I think that it's totally fine if you're okay with it. I lost you at microbiome and I was just, I was on Tinder hooks waiting for what you were going to say. (laughs) (laughs) 
like, like it's for one, it's just baffling the number of microbial cells outnumbering human cells and what's human and what's microbial and how do you actually take it apart? Because once it's apart, it's not even the whole thing anymore. So like, it's not even, I don't know, it's a baffling process that's separating from the whole, but so we, our microbiome assists us in being able to assimilate and digest food, but also our environment, right? Because I talked about the mycobacterium. Well, there's many other kinds of these bacteria and yeasts that elicit feelings of joy or sadness or cravings. And so like how we tend that community actually is our interface for how we're going to assimilate and learn from our, from our environment also, right? Like if I'm malnourished, how can I pay attention? How can I have on my peripheral vision? It just, it's profound how essential it is for us. And if we think about the water that we drink with chlorine or the bread that we might eat, that's been, you know, um, desiccated and that annihilates our gut biome, like what those aspects do within our bodies we can really start to understand at another level of what those elements are doing within nature. I have kind of an idea of where we can link up. And that is in transformation. I want to come back to this idea of how all of this is transformed. And I want to bring into this a, one of the things you said towards the beginning was that we can find all of these mirrors and these Mm, these similarities and meaning of our life as we look at the soil food web. And I want to bring into this, this aspect of transformation and compost in however it's showing up for you right now. And I know we've talked about a couple of things in regards to compost and our, our human emotions of grief. And I just want to explore this space of transformation. I, what a profound space to enter into. In this moment, I think of the ability to transform being a part of something ending, not completely being gone because the, the transformation sort of grabs what was and moves it into a new sense of being. And so that transformed aspect is going to contain the wholeness of what was before, whether it was an experience or shoot, I mean, even a food, but, you know, within the thinking of it in, in the composting aspect, like I think of the terms that we use waste products as a composter, I call those resources. <laughs> um, yes. right and like like trees don't litter humans litter trees are providing food the soil right like so anyway there's there's that ele- there's that element of like taking uh what we would consider waste and turning it into something that's incredibly revitalizing and can add so much energy into into a space and I think the transformation element for me occurred in conjunction with composting because I was doing 
composting so much. Like every day I was going to the lab, checking the piles. I was turning them. Like, so I have the, the setting set up for me that whatever my emotion was that day, if it did end up being a sad, sour, depressed aspect, by the time I finished engaging with these compost piles, I was like, I was in a really good mood. I felt better. So probably the exercise aspect was helping to transform, but then, you know, it like moves on into thinking I can put this, whatever it is into this pile symbolically. And I know that because of what that sad or grief or whatever was, I know that the wisdom of that is still going to be in this place that I'm putting it, but now I get to actually like use it. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it makes perfect sense. And I, I love what you said about you're still taking the wholeness of what was and bringing it into a new iteration of what it is or what is possible, that there is a nutrient cycling that's happening within that emotional space, right? Like all of the nutrients that make up whatever that thing is, whether it's grief, suddenly reorganize into something else, but you are still carrying with you the foundational elements of what was. Does that sum it up? Does that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great summary. And just, you know, on, on like a very linear plane, again, just the act of the composting that we can take this material that is coated in powdery mildew or verticillum or whatever, and turn it into or create an environment so that bacteria and fungi and protozoa and nematodes and microarthropods and macroarthropods and earthworms can all mm. transform that which was like terrifying for a producer to you know to move across their fields and now it's actually something that is applicable and usable and nutrient dense again like this is this essential process that takes place on this planet on that linear plane. And I feel really great about like aligning it with inner processes and transformations. I think it fits beautifully. I have to tease this out and ask you what you just said, that we take something that is fear-based and we spread it amongst all of these different organisms, if that's not a greater analogy for what we're experiencing as humanity right now, this burden of fear and of grief in isolation of the individual. And what it means to compost is to give this biodiverse realm access to transform in collaboration, not in isolation. Nice. That's a really profound interpretation. I think it's so poignant for our times, right? That like, it can be so hard to find the community that can hold our fear and hold our insecurities. I think we're all kind of learning how to find a vocabulary for it. I don't even know. I don't even, is it helpful? Maybe it's a movement. I'm not sure. I don't know. But like, just, I love that you said that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be alone. In fact, it shouldn't be alone. There's someone that can benefit from the sharing of it. Beautiful. I think that this is, this is something 
especially that I've begun to experience in farming, which I think is something that always would have happened as a collaboration and to do it in the isolation of just my husband and I, and to also be forced into asking for help from our neighbors in times of the cows got out and we just need more hands and there's there's nothing for it but to ask for help and to begin to leave some of that ego of I can do it myself behind. And I think that that is yet another lesson embedded here in the soil. Yeah, absolutely. I want to kind of switch gears. And I think that this is actually a really good space because prior to this interview, you recommended a book to me. You recommended Maureen Murdoch's The Heroine's Journey. And it was one of those books that found me exactly when I needed it and the wisdom that it had to offer me and the medicine that it had to offer me was I was ready to receive it finally. And as we've talked about soil science, one of the things I love about the way that you move in this realm is that you are able to pull in not just the hard science, but also this felt sense of being in a space and this intuitive pull towards the plant realm and sense of listening that I think lies very much in the feminine archetype of being embodied in that space. But I know that coming to that and whether or not you've reached whatever, you know, diaphanous destination that is there, but I know that this has been a journey for you. And, and I've mirrored that in many ways of really, I really sought out a very hard journey of idolizing the more masculine elements of logic and facts and data and doing and producing this within culture. And that it has taken a lot for me to begin to soften into that feminine intuition. And I pulled a little quote from Maureen Murdoch in this to just guide us in this conversation. We are split off from a relationship with our creative feminine. Our rational mind devalues and ignores it as we refuse to listen to our intuition, feelings, the deep knowings of our body. Jean Shinoda Bolin states, as we have moved more and more into the realm of logos over eros, left brain over right, there has been an increasing sense of alienation from that inarticulate source of meaning that can be called the feminine, the goddess, the grail. We feel the sadness and the loneliness of alienation, but we do not recognize that these feelings result from an imbalance within our nature. Really nice excerpt from that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so the way that Murdoch talks about the experience, the, the heroine's journey, right? Is that ultimately we participate in the world in way in you know this this modern time typically following a patriarchal structure or path which can work really well for women and then there can be a point at which like there's more uh within us that can be expressed that can be provided to the community to have a family. And I know I chased 
approaching my work with a really masculine perspective and getting lost in the space of needing credentials and academia to be the foundation of my relationship to work. And it has only been recently that I have begun to shift that into having a sense of intuition and embodiment, again, that word embodiment in my work and not just coming from this logos, but finding, finding the arrows, finding the love in there. Yeah. I've had a similar experience moving into agricultural settings and scholastic settings, right? And I think within those spaces, had I been able to maintain my connection with my intuition, what a different experience that might have been. I I can't go back. You know, I made the choice, the best choices that I could make at the time. But now after graduate school, which I'm really wrestling on like what why did I choose that journey? What was that about? It isn't immediately clear. Like I didn't go in being like, I'm going to be a professor. That wasn't, that wasn't my goal. I went in because I had a great opportunity to go in and it just felt right. It felt like it was going to be useful for me at some point in the future. Didn't know why. And coming out of it scholastically wise, okay, fine. So I have a master's in land rehabilitation. But the biggest lesson that I learned from that experience was do not sever. Do not sever yourself from your spirit. Do not sever yourself from your intuition. How does that, what does that look like in an institutional setting? I don't rightly know, but What I suspect is that the brightness and the vivaciousness and the curiosity that our students are going into school with gets demolished. And there's a lot of healing that needs to occur, whether or not it does is a thing. But ultimately, like if I think back to a handful of moments in my graduate experience where I severed myself from my spirit, i.e. I did not listen to my intuition. And I think back to those times and I'm like, oh, what a different story this would have been. And ultimately it had to do with me honoring myself and my experience in agricultural settings and with compost and then meeting that institution that says, well, actually we had to do this. So you have to do this too, just because, or no, you actually need to listen to what I'm saying because I'm actually the one that has the PhD or something to that effect. Like, I don't know how it changes, but I do know that there are so many steps along the way that could get me to remove myself from with, from my intuition. There's so many ways in which that can emerge in life. And how do we foster that connection? Because where we are at on this planet at the moment, having moved in a very linear, very, I say patriarchal. And in that, I mean, it's just, it's like another spectrum of being totally like, like totally feminine, like totally, you know, like uh, how to describe it. It's, I love men and I love what men bring to the table. I love that they can do things that 
I do not know how to do. I don't even want to do them or maybe I do, but I'm just happy that they're doing it for me. But ultimately this system that's been put in place isn't including the wholeness of the picture, which actually is so much rooted in how we feel, our feeling sensations. What is the gut instinct? What feels right? And I mean, I guess it makes sense that that's not in the science class, right? How do you measure gut feeling? (laughs) Um, But I think that's the thing, right? I think that you just touched on it. How do we measure it? Well, what happens if we weren't measuring it and we were mapping instead? How do we shift the way that we think that can include both the masculine and the feminine paradigms and what they bring to the table? And what are we what are we losing in the halls of academia or whatever it is when we castigate the feminine that is going to bring in a genius that we may not fully understand how that will be made manifest in looking at the data and looking at these hard sciences. And I think that there's something intangible there because it has never been there because we have separated children from this sense of juicy curiosity and gut feeling and embodiment within the school system that we don't even know what's possible when that is allowed to flourish. Right. And, you know, to be fair, there are students that really thrive in those settings. Like, but it's a very, like, it's a very unique set that make it through and make it through intact and and, and well. I certainly, none of my peers managed to get through graduate school unscathed. And now it's been, it was January that I graduated and some of my friends in September of 2021. And there's still a lot of healing and processing going on within that realm. So like, you know, going back to the heroine's journey, it's an interesting thing to engage in business life as a female in particular for, you know, I can speak for myself having now I'm 39, not having a family, having pursued my career whole hog. Like really I can do career. I can do business. I got that. My relationships, you know, haven't given enough much attention to that. And so like this heroin journey aspect of participating in this consumeristic capitalistic structure, and then coming into a place of my biology being like, oh, and family. But then like, what does that look like to be both business owner and mother? Lots of women, lots of people do that for sure. But I am like, wow, how, what a weird setup that I actually have to do both. Like that doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's some mourning. There's some mourning in that. There's a little, there's a bit of grief in that. Like maybe I missed a window or something of an opportunity to really engage in family because of having engaged in, in the business realm, thinking that it would create some sort of sense of security. I don't know. 
And I think that's a beautiful aspect of the masculine. Like, I think the masculine wants to provide security, right? This is, we often talk about negative components of the masculine. And I I pulled this quote before this conversation from the fourth turning. And it's again and again, we find that real men are those who give more than they take. They serve others. Real men are generous, even to a fault. And while it's talking about men, I think that there's this component of the masculine that wants to provide a container, wants to provide security for all of the wild feminine urges to unfold. And so I think within this, we are looking to provide ourselves with that container, that security. I mean, this has been our conversation here is I turned 34 at the end of this year and I don't feel ready. I don't feel secure enough to begin a family. And this, my sole focus has just been on my career. And as I look at how to hold both, I feel confused and I feel lost and I feel torn apart because I I want both and I don't want to do them both at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, it's really hard to balance it. And you can't help but look at spaces where this shouldn't be, it's never going to be imbalanced throughout our lives, right? I think that there are going to be ebbs and flows, but where we are right now as a society and culture, it it is just ebbing. And this, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I think more of this conversation in the realm of professional women, I guess it, it doesn't, the feminine maybe. (laughs) I think more of that is, can be very useful because it really is important. You know, like what our bodies can do is time bound Yes, in the sense of having a family. So that sits in a very different place than uh, a male, right? Um, So leaning and kind of Turning back to what we had talked about before about the importance of having diversity for resiliency and being a part of a, of a community and collaborating is this element that is really occurring so much. And it feels like it's quite poignant at this time where we have people such as yourselves, you and Josh running a farm alone, a massive undertaking which, you know, throughout history had done with like people, children, like yes. the, like all these participants. And so I'm curious about the security element or feeling ready, right? Like, what is that? What does that come from? What does that look like? Does that look like money in the bank? Or does that look like grandma next door and auntie down the way and like bestie right over there? Like, you know, that is for my ponderings, that security. I'm like, shoot, poor parents can be good parents too. I don't absolutely I have us right at poor parents can be good parents too. And it was so (laughs) poignant because I I agree that security is in community. Like that is one of the 
that I'm not ready. You said that, you know, that not readiness. I don't think I'm ready in community. And I have a strange attachment to the maiden and to autonomy that there is a part of me just to share in in fullness that doesn't feel ready to share my body and my life with another being in quite that way. And that's something I keep waiting to ripen within me as this, as this feeling of readiness that I am ready to share and give of myself in that way. And that may be a symptom of not having support, or that might just be a part of my journey into, into motherhood. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That is a big part of it. Yeah. And there's a lot to be, you know, I don't, I don't hang out with a lot of other parents along with their kids. That's something that I aim to, to bring into my life more. Like what is that, you know, what is it that I'm like creating in my own mind about what this could be? And like, I'm a member of community. I'm happy to show up for my friends and community with children and what sort of realizations come from that experience. Right. I mean, it's just being in it. And I think we've lost that. We've lost the maiden's role in supporting a community of mothers and learning through that tactile and viewed experience a little bit of what it means to be mother outside of just our relationship to motherhood being through our our parent and child relationship. And I told you at the beginning of this that the heroine's journey really hit me hard in working through some of the mother wound and some of the ways in which I was mothered that changed the way that I feel about that practice or changed the way that I related to the world or related to the feminine or the masculine. And so I think when we bring maidens into that space where they are acting as support as their peers or, you know, people a little bit older than them or younger than them go through the journey of parenthood to see parenthood through the lens of being an adult and not a child and to learn a little bit about maybe what that's like. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Our structure of the nuclear family has really diminished a lot of experiential learning. Yes. And again, diversity, humans aren't very good at embracing diversity, but there's so much to be learned within it. Yeah. Bust out of the nuclear family, you know, figuring out how to share the load of rearing microbes and humans. (laughs) Yes. I want to tease apart a little bit in that, that humans aren't good at interacting with diversity. And I wonder if you think that's always been true or if that that has become true in the last X amount of time and how you see that manifesting in your work. That's a great question. I suspect that as commodification really took hold, I suspect that is when diversity started to become diminished. There's an efficiency aspect that can occur when we simplify things. 
But then there's a massive amount of vulnerability that, that results from that, right? Because you're like really banking on this, like one crop or, you know, one, uh, type of livestock to really just make it through. And then for whatever reason, it didn't pan out, but the diversity element, I think it just, it requires that we take time, (laughs) that we take time to, observe and, you know, make assessments about like what's needed here. Does everybody have what they need? Oh my gosh, the cows just got out. But then, you know, like maybe they got out into like the field that they shouldn't have or whatever this element of like bringing in more diversity requires, it requires more people to manage. It requires a greater capacity to hold the space and think about all these different systems and I think, also, yeah, we've just kind of done ourselves in with the simplification aspect. Once diversity is there, I think people are into it. Um, I agree. And, but really, it's just like, there's a little bit of like, how do I move within this space now that there's so many working parts? How do I organize this within my thoughts? How do I manage all of these different systems? And that challenge is real, right? Like, on a, a farm scale level, you know, doing interplanting of like multi-species crops, fundamental challenges are how do you clean the seeds so that you can have your chickpeas and your flax and your lentils. And, you know, like we know they all grow really, really great together, but ultimately it's our engineering that is set up for simplicity. Certainly we can engineer for diversity. It just takes more time more time. I really like that. I really like that lens. And I really like the invitation that's there for us to begin to engineer and invent and structure and build culture mechanisms and plans at the level of the complex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we have to take that invitation. It's there to restructure something, not even to restructure it, to build it from the ground up again to just change the system and and to rethink what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that perspective. And again, that, that little teasing out of what the soil might have to say about what's possible, that it's possible to build complexity and it's possible for us to hold that complexity and that diversity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are, you're farming, you have all kinds of animals so you're actually engaging in what I'm jibber jabbering about. <laughs> um, so I would love to get your perspective on what it means to be engaging diversity within your home system. Mm. The first thing that came to mind was like Bilbo Baggins. Sometimes I feel like not enough butter spread over too much bread. And I love the diversity. And I told someone recently, I told a good friend of mine recently that we were doing our best this year and our best wasn't very good. (laughs) 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 And... Here we have all of these different systems. So we have poultry and within that we have waterfowl and we have chickens, which they need two different sort of treatments. And we have goats and we have two different, two very different types of pigs. And we have cattle and we have two little horses that love to throw a wrench in everything. You think 
you know, about <laughs> agriculture as, as strange little creatures themselves. And then we have humans and we have dogs and we have this beautiful landscape that is yet still unknown to us coming from the West. And so there is this abundance of diversity. And that's one of the things that I think diversity teaches us is just how much is, is there for the, for the experiencing and for the being in relationship with. And what's difficult is to take a human mind with the, sort of institutionalized upbringing that we just talked about within the context of how we teach children and and how we look at problems in this day and age that desires to simplify and doesn't always know how to hold all of these things together and to find a place where each part is working in tandem, both with the land and with our human schedules. As we embark on, you know, we just farm to raise all of our meat ourselves. And we also run the butcher shop. And I have this podcast that is called to my heart and joyfully thieved more time than I expected. And I have given it freely and gladly. And so I think that, again, there's this invitation to shift mindset from the linear and from the simple solutions that I think for the last three years of farming, my husband and I have been grasping at, well, how can we, how can we find a solution? How can we put it on a chart or a graph or a, you know, a plan? And there's an invitation there for, well, it's not going to fit in that. It's not going to fit in a chart or a graph or a plan. And sometimes it's going to be really messy. And sometimes you're going to do it poorly and it's going to be the best that you could do. And I think this has been particularly hard for me because we rotate all of our animals and that becomes complex. And then all of a sudden something will happen and they'll be there too long. And I feel a sense of, oh, what have I done to the soil? And what have I done to the relationship in this space? Hmm. So it's a lot to hold. I don't know if that answered the question. And thank you for, I just came spilling out of me. So thank you for. I'm so glad that you did. I mean, I think that this is, it speaks volumes as to that desire for simplification, because in a time where people, human attention span has really minimized Yes, and our, our problem solving skills, you know, we're, we're getting so specific with what we learn and managing. I I don't want to say managing complex, participating within a complex system, a diverse system, as you just described, takes you on so many journeys and there's so much to consider. And so it seems few and far between that are willing to show up for that. So I don't know how we blow the roof off of that story, but I certainly think that it is time. And I am so thankful for producers and land managers that have the capacity to be hosts of diversity because it's not easy. And I think internet like sensationalism really brings it to light that it is just like, oh, and now we have birds and butterflies. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened when that camera was off? You know? Yes. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to manage. And there's um 
I don't know. I don't know about the resources available for support in managing diversity over, you know, like we had a large chunk of our agricultural era that was very much in the realm of simplification, right? Go big or get out. Like, so where do we find people that survived and the landscapes that survived that by hosting and keeping diversity? Not to say that we have to go back to that, you know, whatever that is, but like, what does it look like for us now? And where, where are those resources of people that are like, I mean, was it just, is it just always feeling sort of impossible? Is it sort of always feeling like, well, we did the best we could and it wasn't very good. Like, um, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense because I think in many ways, what you're asking is if we go back to this idea of composting and we take what has survived in terms of being able to hold and participate in diversity and some of those last outposts of that, wherever that is. And we take this simplification that clearly isn't working. Mm -hmm. And if we put that into the heart of this compost and we allow it to be picked apart for the nutrients that each of those things represents and are needed and to be reassembled into something new altogether, then there's an opportunity for that relationship that we have with nature and with ourselves and with the way we raise our children to think can change. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I thought about as you talked about this was I did a podcast with a a gentleman named Will Roosh. He's a high school teacher. And he talked about, we teach children what to think, not how to think. And I think that so many of these wicked problems of complexity that we're facing are because we haven't learned how to think. And so as adults, we are invited into learning how to problem solve in complexity. And I wonder about that question, like being taught what to think as opposed to being taught how to think. I wonder kind of revisiting the heroine's journey and the connection with intuition that could it be that we already know how to think Mm. and that there was this, you know, I mean, it's this kind of wrestling with like learning how to learn and learning how to think, but like also like, you know, those elements of like, okay, so you're learning this information. Like, what does that feel like in your body? Where do you feel that? Do you have a word for an emotion that goes along with that? Does it feel expansive? Does it feel contractive? And then of course, like I get the aspect of learning how to learn, but supporting the knowledge that we're coming in with, I think is also really essential because clearly we haven't figured it out. (laughs) We need all the innovative, um, we need all the innovative ideas that coming generations can give us. Thank you for that. Because I think that when we look at children, they are not struggling to hold diversity or complexity. They're just continuous with it. And so maybe it's not that we have to learn it, but we have to come home to what is there and just buried or covered and to bring that intuition back. And it's funny you say this because one of my questions for you was, how do you think we begin to reconnect to that? 
And I think that this conversation is tugging at those places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you come back to it? That's such a good question. I try a myriad of all kinds of ways on how to come back to, to intuition. I'm not very confident in my experience of intuition. I definitely have experiences where I was like, ah, oh, I should have kept, I'm like, I knew, I knew better. Mm -hmm. So I try, I like play around with, you know, like, okay, so if I imagine myself going that way, what does that feel like in my body? Like, does it feel like it's opening or closing? And I kind of play around with it at different points, but ultimately I think it's really founded in being able to rest and being able to access nourishment and certainly having someone on your team that you can process through with it. But for me at this point in my life, I'm doing a lot of sitting with considering scenarios and seeing what happens in my body from that. So that when I am out and engaging with my community, if something isn't sitting in me right before my natural response would be to override and ignore I'm trying to move into a space where like, oh, if something is hitting me in this part of my body, that actually is in for something. And it's okay if I pause and think about what that might be. What sort of ways do you engage your intuition? I love what you said about noticing because this has been really the first space that I've begun to engage my intuition is noticing when I didn't and letting that be a teacher. Okay. So how long did it take me to notice that I didn't, that I didn't engage it? And, and what did it feel like in that moment? What did my body say? What did my mind say? What did that conversation play out as? And beginning to notice my pattern of where I become severed with that intuition. And then just like you said, I think rest is really important to this. And as you were talking, I kept picturing land needs to rest and we need this season of rest in winter or in some places, summer, whatever that space is where, where things begin to go dormant and to go inside and to go into the space of conservation of energy or into growing roots rather than growing foliage. And I think for me that there have, I, I have been lucky enough to have some seasons of deep rest where those roots could begin to grow and I could begin to feel what it was like beneath the surface and where those connections were with other beings and other conversations kind of like stick your tendrils out and feel around in there. And I think that rest has to become a practice. And sometimes I am not good at the practice of rest. And so it is bringing that in. Yeah. Much for sharing that. Yeah. I think this is important to share. I think that our intuition is precious and our embodiment is precious. And I just, the way that you explain it and how we can open ourselves and begin to drop that boundary, I think is part of it too. And be in conversation with not just all the voices in our heads and not even, not even just the feelings in our body, but what happens to all of those when we take them out of isolation of self and put them into the context of beingness with all of the others. Beautiful. Yeah. 
Absolutely. The connection of the macro to the micro, just that like mirroring back and forth is so juicy. I just Mm -hmm. love it. There's something about it that makes me excited. (laughs) Like when I make a new connection, I'm like, I think I'm giddy. (laughs) Yeah. You touched on something there too, because I think ugh, feeling giddiness, feeling joy, feeling excitement, feeling curiosity. Mm-hmm. I think all of those are emotions of connection. Yeah. Yeah. They're vibrations of connection. Yes. It's stoked. It's the, it's the stokedness yeah. of <laughs> the cow in a new pasture and the soil microorganisms in anticipation of what they are about to receive. Yeah. I mean, they get to like reproduce. That's awesome. Yes. (laughs) Swimming around. That sounds like great fun. Yeah. I love that. I have a little bit more, but I want to make sure we didn't miss anything in this conversation about soil and listening to the land before we begin to wrap up. And I I have a couple of bows I kind of want to tie on this conversation. And one of them is your idea of ending well. But before that, I just want to make sure that I haven't missed anything. I, I can't imagine this will be our last conversation. This has been such a joy. Thank you so much for curating this space and creating just a very pleasant experience for the last several months of uh, what gets to be this conversation. It's so special, the spaces that you create and the way that you dive in to the work of the people that you're, you're interviewing. It's astounding and it's unique. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I, I get that not everybody gets as excited about the soil as I do. And I don't expect them to. But I really hope that people start to understand that it is that tactile connection with earth, soil in particular, that is foundational to our health and well-being. The experiences that we're seeing people have as a result of just holding soil in their hand during a conversation is profound. And of course, we are, you know, backing it up by science and the things that can happen from it. But ultimately, establishing that connection in some way, you don't have to roll in it. Or you can adjust <laughs> it. Um, but that is like, it's like foundational to relationship with self because it becomes us and it's foundational to relationship with others, other humans, and also the nature environment that's around us. And I'm seeing as I've been invited post-grad school back into the public to be having these conversations, I am finding that humans at large are describing experiences of deep loneliness and isolation and fear. And they're also spending a significant amount of time on their phone and in front of screens, not looking into the eyes of another person, not looking into the eyes of nature expanse that's around them, not touching nature. So this is like a fundamental health element of just touch it. Put your feet on it, put your hands on it. If you don't know where there's good soil to do that, 
find somebody that does. <laughs> and if you don't have it in close proximity, begin to create that environment for it because it really works. That was beautiful. And I think so important. This relationship with soil, with earth is vital to our well-being. I have to ask you, because you mentioned something, this wasn't on my list, but you mentioned something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is the boundary of self and other. And the more that I think about it, the more it ceases to exist, that the billions of microorganisms that we carry on and in our bodies, that a plant carries on its leaves and stem and roots and inside of its seed, all of this community that all of a sudden, whatever it is that we have defined as self starts to just kind of melt away. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, I'm still just like, right. Boundaries, a trigger word for me. I'm the daughter of a therapist. Um, (laughs) She used that a lot. So my sister and I are in the process of trying to find a new word to define boundary, um, which, you know, where one ends and the other begins, but like, really, what does that even look like? I don't know. I nice Kate. (laughs) Really nice. I guess what that question brings up for me is thinking, and isn't that just what gives awe in how it is that you and I are having a conversation across the country from one another, two beings on a planet suspended in the cosmos, right? Like spinning and like seasons are doing their thing, like all like isn't it a wonder that somehow it just works? Mm -hmm. And so when I think about boundaries or boundlessness, we're just like being vulnerable every day by just showing up and, you know, being out in nature, but somehow it just, somehow it's working and we can figure out ways in which like to tweak it, to help it to be contained in a healthier fashion. Dare I say the vibration of us, right. Helps to like hold it all together and to allow the right things in and keep the wrong things out. That's a good question. I'm going to have to think on that some more, but that's initially what comes up. It's just like, I love that. isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing <laughs> that, that it works? <laughs> isn't that amazing? What do you think about it? I think that the closer I try to get to it, the more it seems to escape me. Something that is impossible to hold. I heard recently on an interview with Zach Bush, he talked about a friend who said, the boundary is what makes the infinite. And I keep returning to this idea. The boundary is what makes the infinite. That it is our perception of there being a finite end that begs the question of what is behind that or what comes next. And as soon as we put up a boundary, immediately for me, the question is, well, well, what's beyond it? And how does, how does the boundary connect to the next boundary of the other thing? And within that, it just becomes this continuity and this flow of one thing into another throughout time. 
And I think I've experienced that the most with nutrients, that the boundary of what we consider of a a rock can be liberated by organic acids and fungi and delivered to a plant that's eaten by an animal that maybe is eaten by us. And we're all just cycling in and out of one another, whether it's above ground or below ground. Absolutely. Really well put. The bio cycling, you know, bioavailable, right? Like my bioavailable nutrients that I can get versus me trying to eat a rock, right? Much better for me to eat fungi, (laughs) Um, much more effective, right? And the way that that is that, that um, nutrients are complex and upcycled as a result of all of these creatures that are, you know, all along this chain, the soil food web chain, to make it possible for us to access nutrients is absolutely astounding. Bringing it back to the composting that holds the, you know, it holds the nature of what went in. Absolutely beautiful. Such an elegant process. Yeah. I love that you brought it back to compost. And so maybe boundaries are just iterative. It's not, can't be touched. And they almost, it's like a soap bubble. As soon as you try to touch them, they just kind of, just kind of disintegrate. Yeah. I want to wrap this up on this note of ending well that you sent me, especially the season that we find ourselves in. If you're farming or ranching, there's a lot of endings as we close the fall and go into the season of rest of winter and also within this conversation. And so I want to talk about ending well. When I came back from the Duke University experience, I was talking with my boyfriend about how I felt about it. And I realized that when I complete something, my first response is to try to make a list of how I could make it better, like for the future, right? That's my first response, not, oh my gosh, what an incredible opportunity to have been invited. And then you did it, you showed up and then people complimented you and they liked it and they found it. You like, that is not what happens in my brain naturally. And so I'm on this exploration of learning how to end well. Like when is a good time to end, right? Like I can get very excited and continue on into the evening when maybe one should have gone to bed. Like there's, (laughs) you know, there's like, there's good endings, (laughs) ending points. So just kind of acknowledge, like being aware to take pause of what's happening within me at the end of something that I have accomplished or an experience such as this, having such a beautiful conversation with you. So I think a good way in ending is by giving something completion, like just in the way that we talked about saying a farewell in a conversation with a person or a plant. It's like a moment of, we did this. And what does it feel like to have been accomplished in that? And to give joy and to give it celebration. And then after some time has passed to give it reflection for, you know, if it's something that one wants to better in the future. I love Um, that. Yeah. So that's my new practice. I think it got uh, 
certainly just like moving from one task to the other quickly in grad school made it so that I never did a very good job of acknowledging beginnings and endings. And they're really helpful to have. Uh, <laughs> they're like time markers, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they help us find a sense of closure or a sense of opening, I think, just within ourselves. Yes. And maybe even like the contribution that we made, right? Like how many hours have you put in to curating this conversation, right? Like what an incredible accomplishment and dedication to create this kind of space. What a gift for me. And yeah, I think our our acknowledgement about how we are making contributions to our community and it's not being like, it is important to be humble. Also, it's important to acknowledge our roles within our community and what the contributions are that we want to make to them. And are we doing that? And if we are, celebrate it. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for, I think this is a very important conversation, but I also want to practice it. And I want to thank you for the contribution that you made to me 10 years ago that I think in many ways planted a beginning seed for what eventually became this podcast and this life and has had, and I mean, it ripple effects that have probably changed my trajectory in bigger ways than I could tell you. And thank you for what you have done in soils near and far. The impact that you have made is on billions and and trillions of little life forms is not something that I think is tangible to our human brains. And there is water in the earth that might not have been there without the helping hand and the support that you have given producers and farmers and ranchers over the years. And thank you for going through the portal of education to bring this to your community and for being an agent of transformation that you, Molly, are transforming and composting so much here on this earth. And I see it and I am in awe of it. Just listening to the way that you share these stories from the soil on this podcast has humbled me and changed me. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And you are welcome. (laughs) So beautiful. Thank you. I think that's perfect. Tell people where they can find you right now. And I know this is always a funny thing to ask, but... Yeah, at the moment, my web presence is lackluster. I'm getting an overhaul on my website. So one could email me if one has specific questions or ponderings. Um, and that's molly.lscl at gmail.com. There is a, a blog that is somewhat ancient, but it is kind of my only like web page presence at the moment while my other's under construction. And that's called the Microherders Manifesto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. But um, yeah, it's a great winter job coming up for me to kind of revamp that. But those are good ways to get a hold of me. I am also on the Instagram. My business name is Haviland Earth Regeneration. And so that's what my Instagram handle is. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes too. Great. Thank you for embarking on this journey with me. Thank you so much. This has been very sweet. and such a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>